Welcome to Novel Romantics, a podcast about contemporary American fiction. I'm the host of Novel Romantics, Douglas Cowie. I'm a writer and teacher. And today we'll be discussing the novel Circe by Madeline Miller. My guest today is Hannah Bean. Hannah Bean is a writer and classicist. She graduated from Royal Holloway University of London in 2020 with a first in English and creative writing, having focused heavily on folklore, classical mythology, and reinterpretations. She is currently in the research phase of an extensive project for a work of neo-historical fiction on the lives and values of the Vestal Virgins of ancient Rome. In September, she's due to start a master's degree in classics and ancient history with a focus on myths of the ancient world. Welcome, Hannah, to Novel Romantics. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. Thanks for coming. Today, we're going to discuss Circe by Madeline Miller. As I said, as always on Novel Romantics, we'll avoid any major plot spoilers as we go. That'll be a kind of interesting thing to talk about as we go with this novel in particular, because um, Circe was published in 2018 and is Madeline Miller's second novel. Her first, The Song of Achilles, won the 2012 Orange Prize for Fiction, and, like Circe, is a work that takes a figure from classical mythology as its starting point. So a lot of the stories and scenes that we see developing in this novel are based on uh, ancient Greek mythology, and um, the character of Circe herself is, a, is an important character in, in some stories we've seen before. So the idea of spoilers is almost, I mean you're getting a retelling of stories we've heard before. And I guess that's, Hannah, where I want to start. If you um, maybe could just tell us a little bit about who is who is Circe to begin with. No, of course. And I, I do agree that the the idea of spoilers when it comes to sort of characters and entire plot lines that are not lifted from mythology, but at the very least interpreted. Like, I think you can find just about every beat of what happens in Circe and some variation of, of uh, literature and mythology. But... Circe herself, she, she pops up in a couple of stories, but I think she's most prominent in um, Homer's Odyssey, where, of course, as Odysseus is travelling home from the um, siege of Troy, and he obviously gets a little bit lost along the way, um, she is, her island, Aea, is one of the islands that he finds, and of course, she is most known for being essentially a sorceress who then turns his crew into pigs. He overpowers her, or in intimidates her, or just impresses her with his wits depending on how you want to read it and she takes in his crew for upwards of about a year while they sort of recoup before they leave again and she's never seen again and you do see this sort of this 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 great lineage and this great power in her but I would say that she is still only a supporting character in the in in the adventure of Odysseus within the Odyssey, obviously she shows up in um, Hesiod a bit. She shows up here and there. There's the uh, Telegony, but she. If if you asked who Circe is, you'd, you'd say from the Odyssey. She did this in the Odyssey. Yeah, she's the lady who turned them all into pigs in the yeah. Odyssey. It was kind of like when I when I first saw this novel, and so in fact when someone told me about this novel, I mean I. I don't have anywhere near the knowledge of of um, the classics that you do, but I have some. I've read a lot of things and whatever. The only thing I could really think of was a whole novel about the lady who turned Odysseus's guys into pigs. It was interesting to me that you said he impresses her, or I can't remember now already what the, you, you had about three different ways of describing his kind of spell that he casts on Circe. 
depending on how you look at it. It seems to me that what we're dealing with here with this novel is it's a reinterpretation, a retelling, a reimagination of this figure and of the stories that create this this um, character, Circe, and and a reimagining of the myths that go alongside that. And and almost all of one of the things I found really interesting about this novel is that the interest in these stories is not necessarily what happens because they're all stories that we've seen before. We get a thing about the the Minotaur, we get Scylla and Charybdis and these kinds of stories that you've seen in the Odyssey or in the Iliad or in other Greek epics and so on and so forth. But what's of interest is the like, depending on how you look at it. She's always looking at these, Madeline Miller, I mean, is always looking at these stories for what the perspective, what is the retelling, what different perspectives does the retelling bring to these stories that we already know? And that's really what, to me anyway, was one of the things that's super fascinating and, and in fact, very emotionally moving about this novel. Absolutely. I would say, to be honest, that is probably, as as modern a retelling as this is, that's probably the most almost quintessentially classical and Greek almost part of it is that we know these stories and we know, you know, the stories that Homer was telling people would already know these were already oral traditions. These were already stories passed down through time. Pretty much every play you went to go see uh, in ancient Greece, you would already know the story of, but people weren't, they weren't looking for the originality. They were looking to see these stories that they knew and how people would interpret them, how things would carry on, how things would change depending on what was happening, happening in the ancient world at the time. And I think that um, Circe really follows in almost that tradition of, of, of taking a story that you know, taking the taking the fundamentals of it, but updating it for its time and for its audience. Yeah, and it does that. It, it, it's interesting that you, you've emphasized the idea that it updates these things because it doesn't. It, it's a it's a interesting novel to read because it feels at the exact same time it feels very modern and very twenty first century, and at the same time feels as it i mean as it in fact is completely soaked in its in its material and its source material that you can tell that madeline miller is someone who knows her you know her she knows her homer and she knows her ovid and she knows her um aeschylus and everybody else um everybody else as i call them uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, she really knows these stories backwards and forwards and she knows the versions that she's playing with and they, and it comes out in the in the language and in the way she tells these stories and the way she looks outside of the immediate story she's telling to the contexts that impress upon it i think absolutely there's there's definitely a, a very a very broad understanding of not just not just Circe, but all of the myths that feed into her and all of the sort of the, the interpretations of her. And I think that's as that's as classical as it gets. It's it's honestly such a such a fantastic little almost amalgamation of myth and of almost forging a myth into a person, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It does make sense to me. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what you mean about forging a myth into a person. When I was watching a couple of interviews with uh, Madeline, Menish, uh, Madeline Miller, sorry, uh, she spoke. Uh, she spoke quite a lot about how, when she first read the book, as actually when she first read uh, the Odyssey as as a child, she knew that Circe. She she knew the reputation of Circe, and she was so excited to see 
from what she'd seen of Odysseus as this incredibly intellectual and strong, you know, this is going to be a fantastic confrontation. This is going to be so impressive. You know, it's going to be a meeting of the minds. Circe is this incredible, powerful character, this incredible, powerful woman who turns men into pigs. And the actual confrontation is... She she describes it essentially as um, Circe throwing herself at Odysseus's feet the moment he pulls out a sword, and she she says that she threw the book across the room because she was just so put out by almost the the myth that preceded her. I think the almost cultural understandings that we've placed upon these characters, and then coming to see her in her source material as maybe less than the sum of that almost big cultural part, and I think that. Circe almost stands as almost a reclamation of that, if you if you if you want to say that. But also that, um, obviously, Circe herself wasn't involved in a lot of the mythology that is played upon here. Obviously, you've got the birth of the Minotaur, you've got Daedalus, you've got Jason and Medea. All of these she doesn't show up in, but you can understand by almost having this very rounded knowledge of mythology that she can almost be a finger in all of these pies. But it also informs I think so much more about the character by seeing her in the contexts and as someone who is just an outcast someone who has just been exiled and for all intents and purposes doesn't really get to see all that many people these kind of little excursions into the outside world into seeing people and having her bounce off of them I think is a really really interesting way of building a character. It's super interesting there's a couple things I want to say in response to that actually um one is that just going back to the going back to the starting point for this character is like this is the lady who turns Odysseus's men into pigs. Odysseus doesn't even show up in this novel until about halfway through, roughly the halfway mark is when he finally shows up. And so, back to your um, thing about the myth kind of creating the the figure, the character, the person, we have this whole half a novel, one hundred and eighty pages of novel. That it would be wrong to say that they're just there to build her character up. I think that's um, not quite true, but it is also part of what's going on, is that you have a huge, rounded sense, complex sense of, of who this woman is, where she's come from, why she's ended up where she is, what she's like in different situations that 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 start to form her. And some of those situations are some of the ones that you enumerated. You know, we see her helping to perform the c-section that burst the the minotaur um and so on and so forth and it's really interesting to me that madeline miller took this bit part player almost um, i mean certainly like i i was rereading last week the parts of the metamorphosis by ovid that have circe in them which are scant there's like two or three of them and and she's kind of even less of a role in there than she does in in the odyssey i would say and it really is just like a guy telling a story about this horrible lady who turned them all into pigs but we see all these things that form her and that madeline miller has kind of looked across the spread of stories available to her and said which ones would be interesting to just stick this character into and what would become of the situation what would change about the situation or how could we understand the situation differently with this particular woman sitting as the teller of it and as the centerpiece of it. It's super interesting, I think. Yes, exactly. In some of her interviews, she does say that she felt so strongly that Circe was almost a, a sort of a cameo 
um, sort of a cameo appearance within the Odyssey. And when she set about writing Circe, she almost wanted Odysseus to play that same role that he, that Circe played for him in his own story. He he does he is a, he is a cameo. Obviously, his his presence and his absence inform the entirety of the story because we we know the build up and then we see sort of the what's left behind after he's no longer there. But I think that the interpretation of Odysseus's character is fantastic in and of itself as well. Yeah, and there's a great without giving anything away, there's a great scene where they where they first meet in this novel, really at the halfway point of the novel, and the power dynamics between them are super interesting, I think. A lot of, one way of reading this novel is in almost each scene is like, what are the power dynamics at stake in every scene and who knows what about whom and and what do they want from this scene? It's a really interesting way of looking at it or it's, she's she's engaged with those ideas in a really interesting way almost at every turn in this novel i think the idea that odysseus is a is a kind of bit part player in circe's life is partly interesting to me because there's a something that madeline miller does with time in this that i think she does with a really light touch but also is is kind of important to the whole novel and is interesting to the whole novel and it's it's interesting exactly to what you were just talking about that Odysseus is this kind of bit part in Circe's life um or a cameo in in her life partly because he's mortal and she's not yes and there's this thing with immortal time versus mortal time and 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 it comes up at, with almost like it's it's not constantly there in the novel but it's but it's there with almost a, a regularity where it becomes it comes into play here and there with the ways in which she makes you aware that that the lifetime of a of a human or any mortal because it's not just about human uh, creatures but 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 non-human creatures as well that they they're like a blink of an eye to the immortals and that you might not even meet more than a couple of mortal people in your whole life if you're one of these immortal um, figures of ancient Greece I suppose. And and she's always kind of playing with that idea, and it lends a it lends a quality to the the novel that I suppose comes back to what you were saying earlier, Hannah, about the the modernness or contemporariness of this novel, while also having that sense of truth or or uh, integrity towards towards the ancient Greek sources and the the kind of timelessness, I suppose, for lack of a better way of putting it, of those sources and how they inform this contemporary novel that she's telling at the same time. Absolutely. I sort of riffing on what you're saying there, I do think that the 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 dynamic between the immortals and the mortals, between immortality and mortality in general, I think is it's a it's a very modern theme. I it is it is obviously explored in a lot of classical texts, but I'd say that the the way that it's almost wielded within um within Circe, I, I always think of sort of in the first, I think it's in like the first two or so chapters, when she's speaking with Glaucos and she's like, Oh, you know, I avoiding spoilers, I was here for this event. This was only just this is only quite recent for me. And he looks at her and he goes, That was like 300 years ago yeah you haven't been alive for that long and it's almost our first sense that because because this time seems so normal so flowing to Cersei that when almost you you get that glimpse of almost a mortal perspective it almost feels like a like a misstare on the step it sort of brings you back into focus a little bit and it's I think it's really interesting and just seeing how mortal lives are played with by immortal beings and how immortal beings are sort of seen 
manipulated in some in some places, but um, mostly it's the power dynamic is the other way. Um, how immortal lives are impacted by mortals or not impacted in some cases. I think it's a really interesting. It's like what you said about power dynamics. It's it's this constant sort of back and forth, this constant flow almost of who is really in control in any of these situations. Yeah, and how does this one thing give, from one point of view, gives a character power over another, and from another point of view, gives them, gives the exact opposite power dynamic. So that that Glaucos example is interesting. He's completely horrified by the idea that she could be that old, and she tries to then play it off as a joke, which is really interesting because the idea that she's been around that long gives her a kind of terrifying power over him, but the, his knowledge that she is immortal would then give him a strange kind of power over her yes and 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 one of the things about how the different power dynamics work in this novel is it's often about who knows what about whom or about the situation they're in and then how they want to or choose to or need to leverage that knowledge in order to get what they want and it plays out. It plays out in a, like every scene yes. has a has a version of that. I'd almost say, playing. obviously, not giving any spoilers, but so many characters, whether they are immortal or mortal, do almost they 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 fear that people are scheming against them. They, I think, in their weakest points in their sort of in their lives or in their governing, they feel that people are scheming against them. They grow paranoid. Um, you 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 see them almost expecting that they're conspiring with other people behind their back. And for some people, it is their downfall. And for some people, they manage to move past it and sort of almost become one with who they themselves are and that they, you know, maybe they are talking about me. Maybe they are conspiring against me, but I'm strong enough to overpower them and I'm not going to let it consume me and I think that's a lesson that some characters learn and that some characters don't but you see it between both the immortals you see it with Zeus you see it even with Circe for quite a while but you also see it with mortal characters who maybe have less time to get over it and that it does end almost tragically yeah I was just about to say it, it depends to some degrees on what's at stake for the character um, in in each of those, because like with it's like with Zeus and Helios, there's a there's a point where is it Hermes who says like oh you know how it is like um, he says this he says this they make an agreement and everybody saves face and they move on because they can afford to all move on because they're the most powerful guys and they they're going to live forever and whatever but then you get someone who's who's going to die and they know they're going to die because they're because they're mortal and it's like well I need to leverage this for what I can now and I don't have that to lose and then you also get the dynamic depends a bit on whether they're right about the other person's yes motives like they, so like lots of people seem to think Circe is scheming at times when she's not and they don't think she's scheming when she is scheming <laughs> and so they're constantly misjudging her she's i mean one way another way of reading this novel i suppose is like just watching how badly she gets misjudged and it depends on whether she is aware that she's being misjudged or not and depending on whether she realizes that that misjudgment gives her power or not so one of the things about this novel is that you're watch you watch her mature through the novel and change and learn there's a, there's there's a couple different passages where she starts talking very explicitly about what she learned and it's usually very practical it's like and it's you get these sentences i learned this i learned this i learned this i did this i did that and they're really they, they work nice nicely in a kind of poetic way just from the point of view of language but they're they're always very practical but you also realize that you're you're reading a, a moment of of 
transition that they work they work figuratively as well that she's actually growing and growing up not just learning but but becoming a more mature more complex person and more self-aware which is a really interesting thing as well i wanted to swing back to our central scene again of Circe meeting Odysseus because that's an interesting one with respect to what we've just been talking about as well where they in this case they each know who the other one is they both know what of what the other is capable he seems to know more about her than she does of him but she still knows she knew he was coming you know she's been it's there's been a prophecy that this guy's going to show up and so they're both super cagey and then I don't think this is giving anything away. They, they end up both just putting their cards on the table to try and figure out how to res- like, oh, we're at a real standoff here. Well, let's put our cards on the table and see if we can solve it, whether they solve it or not, or how they solve it. I'll leave to the, the reading of our listeners. But it's a super interesting moment because you see this tension playing out in a way that it hasn't yet played out in any of the scenes that, that lead up to it. And, and again, like that half the novel that you've read has sort of developed and built this character towards a moment where we see it pay off in a different way Absolutely. and move and I, shift. In a you know, Cersei's way. trust has gone from being almost incredibly trusting to not trusting at all to almost in order to become trusting again, she almost has to build up her power. She almost has to start building up defenses, I guess, because you, you, you go from someone who completely underestimates herself to someone who has to learn to fend for herself and someone who almost has to start reinforcing herself. And I think that by the time that, I'd say that by the time that she does meet Odysseus, I'd say that she is strong enough in herself that that that's almost a novelty in itself to a Greek hero. I would say. In what way do you do you mean that? In a mythological sense, uh, you know, how's the best way to phrase this? Odysseus Odysseus finds a lot of random women alone on islands <laughs> throughout the Odyssey. Um, so he's not <laughs> the only one. Uh, you also have uh, Calypso, who he actually stays with for, I believe it's six years, rather than just the one that um, the, the one that Circe keeps him there for, because she, she is also sort of banished to this island. She also wants Odysseus to stay, and she, you know, she's very kind to him. She sort of lavishes him in goods, and he's completely miserable because it's not there's not the same almost power play in the situation. There's not the same um, almost intellectual display. The same almost we both have both our cards on the table rather than just. I kind of want you to be my husband. Please stay with me forever. And he's starting to get miserable. Yes. Yeah. There's no dynamism to what the to their he's relationship. He's not begging to leave Aea in the same way that he is to leave Calypso's island. Mm-hmm. By the, it's one of the first bits of him that we see in the Odyssey is him just begging to go home essentially, and he has to get divine intervention to do so. Um, and you don't see that in so much with Sir like Circe. I'd say that you you have almost this very equal dynamic you, you know even as much as you're talking about an immortal and a, and a mortal you have this dynamic where they are almost on an even foot they can teach each other things and they do i do think they respect each other i really i really do despite anything that happens i think they really do have such a like a mutual respect for what each other are capable of mm-hmm. yeah and well and which is in starts to get pushed close to a definition 
a definition of love. Like they actually love each other. And there's one of the things that this novel is about as well is exploring different ideas of what love means and how it manifests itself and how people reflect on that, which maybe he doesn't have in the, the, the yes, thing with Calypso I, is a different. I thing. would say even in, in Circe, the, what the, the love that, the love that she shows is very different to our other kind of displays of divine love and not even just divine love. I would say otherworldly love in general, because I would say that also what we see of, let's say, Medea, what we see of um, Athena and um, the almost parental, the parental love of sort of Helios. I would say that Circe's love is very much more mortal and very much more human. And, and I say that about, I say that about Odysseus. I say that about anyone else that she encounters. I say that about her son. I would say that it's a much more mortal love because divine love in, in, in Circe almost seems to ricochet between incredibly intense not it's difficult to describe as love because it is care but it's care of what you expect the person to be it's it's about appearances it's a, it's a much more selfish thing and it's about appearance it's about for helios it's about almost appearing to be in control appearing to have powerful offspring but not too powerful and it's about it's it's about the power dynamics, whereas when you have a an immortal with a mortal in the sense of someone like Medea or so the sense of someone like Athena, you end up with almost them lavishing attention and intensity on them that the human can't really cope with. It's it's not on the their same level. And mm -hmm. I guess you could also you could almost take that as where Circe she very specifically has the voice of a mortal. She's able to speak with them a lot uh, on, a, on a very similar level i guess whereas the intensity of someone like athena it it doesn't it doesn't lend itself well to mental stability for the mortal or, or for the gods for that matter in some ways that there, there's a couple points in the novel where it's explicitly said like this thing about the voice that gods or the immortals all have to moderate their voices so that the so that mortals can understand them and I guess it's Hermes who says to Circe, like, you don't have to do that. You know, your voice, you just, your voice, they can understand. And so she's not, she's not putting on her voice when speaking exactly. to anyone. It's not about appearances the same way that it is for a lot of the other gods. It's, it's just her speaking. It's, it's very much yeah. more personal. That's right. Yeah. I want to, at this point, I want to shift a little bit and ask you about something we haven't touched on at all yet, um, which is Aeneas. <laughs> In whom you have you're laughing because you and you have a huge interest in in the Aeneid and Just a um, <laughs> you want to draw some connections to this story and that story. So maybe a good place to start is by, by just telling us um, who Aeneas is and what the Aeneid is. So, so this is this is such a call out. I I do respect that Doug just remembers me purely for how much I love the Aeneid. I I, <laughs> I fully accept this as my title. <laughs> but uh, so the Aeneid is a it's a, a Roman classic based on sort of the model of Homer. So it was commissioned by Caesar Augustus, and it's supposed to be in the same way that the Odyssey was a almost foundational myth for 
the continuum of, of, of Greece, you have the Aeneid as a sort of retroactive foundation myth for Rome. And Aeneas himself is, he is the founder of what will later become Rome. He's a Trojan and he follows the, almost the story of the Odyssey. He, he has many perilous journeys across the water. He has, um, he has his own battles and I would say that a big part of the Aeneid is the transition between a Grecian hero model where you are very, you, you have um, your reputation, you have your spoils of war and you have your excellence and all of these things have to be bolstered up by other people. You are quite, it's not vicious, but you have to be pretty ruthless versus a Roman hero who is more civil, he's pious, he thinks about his family, he thinks about the gods. He's more of a political leader in as much as he is a military leader as well. And I would say that the almost transitional period between being this very Greek hero, being this almost very passionate, very angry figure as he is uh, leaving Troy, as opposed to when he later becomes this very Roman, very political, almost sort of trying to do negotiations, trying to work out how to do land, uh, getting ready for battle. It's uh, where he's a Roman hero, I'd say is it really, really struck me when I was reading Circe. Obviously, I won't talk too much about Odysseus because most of what we see of him is in the later bit of the novel. But the, I would say that the exploration of Odysseus as he stays a Greek hero, even in a text that is ostensibly too modern for him. And what we see of him after he's done his heroic journey, after he's after he has returned home to Ithaca, it reminds me very, very much of the Aeneid, I would say, because, again, not to spoil Circe or anything, but the Aeneid doesn't have... It, it has a happy ending, but it doesn't necessarily have a happy ending for Aeneas himself. So he... Spoilers for a book that came out 2,000 years ago, but... <laughs> yeah, I, th I feel like I feel like when, you, when it comes to talking about things like this, all bets are off. Like, people, yeah. <laughs> you know... <laughs> They had two thousand years. You had two thousand years to read this book. We're back to mortal in immortal time. You had, um, you had enough time to catch up, but yeah. um, he essentially has to battle for the land and for the crown of what will later become Rome. So the the gods are very involved in as just as much as they are in Circe uh, to the point where, and it's quite vicious to be honest. A lot of the involvement of the gods because. If, if a god picks you as their favourite, there is a very real chance that they will tear your mind apart and you will go into essentially a frenzy or a furore. Like, you you, you, you are not doing well if you're chosen as a favourite by the gods in most situations and it will not end well for you. But I would say they... The battle... He, he, he defeats his opponent, Turnus, pretty, pretty unequivocally. Turnus is down on his knees and he is begging... He's begging Aeneas and he says, you know... I've brought this on myself. I can do, you can do anything. Just please don't kill me. Please think about your father. Think about my father. My father is elderly. Please, please spare my life for him. And he's on his knees. He has surrendered. And Aeneas just, just kills him. And the last thing we see of the Aeneid is he's just killed this surrendered man. And we never see any kind of celebration of the end of the battle. We never see any kind of um, sort of, triumph or heroism 
because his last his last move is an act of cowardice. He never fully becomes this transitional Roman hero. He he goes back to his almost brutish ways by the end of the book, and it's not celebrated. It's not you would think for a, a book that was supposed to be propaganda for um, Caesar Augustus's lineage, you'd, you'd think that a nice big propaganda book would end with big fanfare, big big parade, big lots and lots of promise. But it's it's so it's kind of a downer. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's 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 miserable, and it's not judged in the text but it's judged by what isn't there and i would say that that almost downfall of a classical hero because they just don't fit within this new mold this new hero this this new story for a different time i'd say that that is it really really struck me reading circe just just how much odysseus feels out of time even within a novel that is so based on greek mythology yeah why do you think that why do you think that is or how does that work in the novel I mean, I would say it's really difficult to skip around uh, sort of spoilers and stuff for the. Oh, that's right. You, it's, some of it you can just give away. It doesn't yeah. matter. <laughs> but he's he's this. I feel like we we get such a picture of Odysseus and his triumphs and his journey in stories that we are told from the Odyssey and stories that Circe then tells to her son. And when she tries to tell him the more gory parts, the the the, the worst part, the bad things that Odysseus did, Telegonus is like, no, 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 you're, you're telling it wrong. He wouldn't do something like that. I bet mm-hmm. actually it ended really nicely. And she's like, Okay, sure. That's that's if that's what you want me to say, I'll tell you the the nice the nice sanitized happy versions. And then when you see Odysseus again, he is this paranoid. He is this miserable. He never truly left the battle. He never truly stopped being tormented by the gods because they'd picked him as his favorite. And I would say that almost that the fact that he still almost exists within the framework of Homer even outside of that it's almost it, it it haunts him he's not able to adapt well back into being a king of ithaca he's not well he's not able to adapt into the role of being a father he remains this brutal haggard miserable figure and i'd say that that almost inability to translate your heroism into a different framework almost it really made me think of the hero's journey in the aeneid if that makes sense yeah i wonder if some of what's at stake here is it comes back to this issue of time that i brought up that that these these deeds of odysseus are great in one timeline in the immortal timeline because they brought glory to this and that and the other thing and like you know the idea that all the all the human suffering is just divine comedy it's just entertainment for the gods and it makes the gods feel good about themselves and this comes up explicitly in the novel as well that the gods, you know, well, they don't care if you're if if this decision pains you because they're just in it for themselves. And and so Odysseus, in the telling of this epic story of Odysseus or of Aeneas, is this story of heroism in the long run of the two thousand years that brings us up to the very moment of recording this podcast, because um, it's the story of a hero. But but then one of the things the novel does is it brings it it kind of wipes away that that long arc of time and concentrates on it as a story of particulars and of a particular man suffering particular things. Like when, when his crew and he show up at her Island, she takes a lot of detail over 
describing physically what they're like and they're all really battle scarred you know they're basically young men but they're but they're young men who've been in war and they've, they're completely scarred and all these scars are are the particular scars the the mortal scars of that immortal timeline has put on top of them right yes it's a war that was fought because of immortal folly in the first place the immortals having the mortals fight this war over their own sort of sense of burnt pride and these almost very mortal pawns and their their you know their their fates as far as the fates of his soldiers go it's just it's just a a a flicking an ant off of the table for the gods who dispose of them yeah but this is also the interestingly the fate that befalls Circe her supposed crimes um that get her exiled aren't that really that big a deal and again it's it's even told to her explicitly ah yeah that wasn't that big a deal to anybody you just had to be made the examples so that everyone could feel good about themselves and then what this novel then be, is about is her her particular sufferings and growings and whatever it's not it's not really just about her suffering this novel far from it but but you know what i mean like it's it's about it's about the things that she experiences and goes through and the trials that test her and how she grows from those things none of which have anything to do with the thing that got her there in the first place is but but the thing that got her there in the first place is what's forced us upon her and so even in in her this um set of time of different times is is at stake and is is a dynamic that that impacts on her life and how she has to go about things of course i would say very quickly before we move on i do find it really interesting in circe that almost one of the biggest threats to an immortal or to a mortal is this idea of not being remembered of mm-hmm. becoming nothing of you know your your reputation being washed away you know one of the biggest threats levied to one of the characters is if you choose this option no songs will be told will be sung about you no no stories will be told about you you will be nobody you will not have our divine protection you will not have this you will not be a hero and it's almost this threat of never being remembered and i think that that does factor in so much to the almost the both the discussions of sort of immortality and mortality but also just to these myths in general i think when you're reading a book that is a mythical like a mythological retelling it is a these are the stories that have been written down and remembered for thousands of years and the threat of becoming outside of that that no one knows what's going to happen to you 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 become very very normal almost and i think that's a really really interesting sort of addition to an adaptation like this well in a way it brings us right back to where we started our whole conversation because circe as this marginalized figure in those tellings in those previous tellings or as this bit part player no one's singing songs about her right she's she's just someone who comes up in the song we sing about odysseus and here's so so in this retelling she's had she has to tell her own story it's a first person narrative she's she has to tell her own story and sing the song about herself and make herself into some kind of hero i was going to say the same kind of hero as odysseus and i think that's wrong um so i stopped myself and now i've just said it anyway but um but she she has to sing her own song to make her self into the hero of her own story on her own terms that's why it's not like odysseus and in the way she wants to be remembered or wants to be seen and that's super interesting because also just because she's not telling a story of battles and wars she's telling the story of a woman 
constructing her sense of identity. And one of the things that I found interesting in this novel, I don't know if this is strictly true, but it's it's true of a lot of the men who show up on her island, is that when they get when they show up, they don't get named right away. They're always they're always just he for a while. So there's there's various men who who show up and leave and show up and leave for various reasons and with different things that we don't necessarily need to go into in their entirety. But like every one of them, if you're not paying attention when you're reading and your and your mind is wandering, you, you'll you'll get a couple pages or at least half a page into this guy's arrival and you'll think who is this and then you'll go back to try and find out who it is and and it hasn't you, the reason you don't know is it hasn't been said yet and she only lands the names later on I, which i think is really a really clever thing that madeline miller's done there but it um it also is partly about circe as a narrator positioning herself at the center of the story without having to call attention to it you always have to earn the right to be remembered you always have to earn the right to have your name yeah. immortalized in a story like this and whether that's because you do good things or bad things mm-hmm. that's interesting i'm not because because there's at least one character and who does a bad thing who doesn't get named yes and and it's because of the nature of the bad thing and and it's a very interesting moment in the in a quite difficult moment in the novel um but there's a character who is never named and who's erased from the history because because of the the bad and like yeah. it's it's the one of the few cases where um again coming back to something we were talking about earlier this this idea of relationships that involve dynamics there's almost no dynamic relationship there it's a very clear cut thing a thing b or person a person b and this is what i want and this is what i get and i take it and i and i go and so and that character never gets named whereas other characters might do bad things but there's something more at stake in the interaction there's something important in the interaction good or bad that that lends them deserving makes them deserving of of being named i suppose yeah or that they've done other things elsewhere that deserves them to be named. And in fact, the first men that Circe turns into pigs on her island, which is impossible to be anything giving away, because again, that's where we enter the conversation <laughs> about her. Um, the first men, it, she, they're introduced by saying, oh, this was the um, first of those crews that everybody would later claim their their lineage to. Uh, you know, Everyone wanted to be known as one of these crews uh, or or having been descended from one of these crews of these men who kept landing on my islands. And this is, of course, these are the forerunners of Odysseus, right? These are all the men returning from the Trojan War, um, though they're never named as, as that. Um, but it's really interesting that part of that not naming is about saying, what's, what, claim do, what claim do you really have to this? What stake do you really get to claim for yourself in this, in my story? Not one that's worth naming you. Whereas Odysseus gets named, you know, Hermes gets named, lots of other people that you know and love from reading Robert Graves or whatever um, other uh, yeah. stories of Greek mythology you, you're into, dear listener. Um, you know, they all get named, um, but not these these nameless crews who may or may not you may or may not really be descended from or you may or may not really have any claim to and who just come and go or get turned into pigs exactly i I really wanted to just say men are pigs that's what we learned from this (laughs) (laughs) 
That's the new tagline of the book. Except that she says actually at one point, men make bad pigs. Like she she describes really um in a lot of detail these men, Odysseus's men, in fact, I think, who who have just been turned into pigs, and she describes them all scrabbling around on the on the ground and and how low their bellies are and how it's good because they they can't get knocked over so easily and all the good things about pigs and then it ends with men don't something to the effect of like men don't make good pigs which is a kind of nice play on that idea <laughs> exactly what, what else do you want to tell us about this novel hannah what else is on your mind from your rereading of it that's a great question honestly i we've covered we've covered quite a lot of ground actually yes <laughs> that's the thing we've covered we've covered a lot of ground and i feel like the longer i talk about Circe, the more likely i'm just going to go oh it's so good it's so good over and over again and that's not productive i mean it, I mean, it really <laughs> it really is good i mean so two things that i guess that I, that I think are worth saying about this novel is one is that if you're not someone who is well-versed in or even necessarily particularly interested in classical mythology and all this kind of thing it it is a novel that takes a little bit of work to get into um because it's i mean even for me i i'm interested in this stuff in a, in a somewhat i suppose dilettantish way um, i don't i have enough knowledge i have i don't have a huge knowledge i do kind of go back and forth in, in reading various things like ovid or homer or greek lots of greek tragedies and so on now and again just because I, I always i always find myself turning to them just because i find them fun and interesting but i don't have the kind of knowledge that say you have so i found kind of getting into the story was a little bit bewildering for a few chapters but then it all kind of beds in and i got the hang of it and was reminded of things and it and it, and it didn't seem to matter that much but also so like I wouldn't be what I'm this is an elaborate way of saying if if you're listening to this and haven't read the novel and are wondering whether you want to like it's worth reading it's I don't be put off by that part of it by in the slightest cuz um the other thing that's great about this novel I, I mean really great is Madeline Miller has paid such close attention to her language and it's it's just a really rich novel on a kind of sentence by sentence basis that she's really the the rhythms of it and the the imagery of it and just the the sound of the language that she's chosen is really careful and really involving in a way that i it's it's quite an exciting book to read just from the just from a sound of language point of view which isn't always the case with novels but really is this it's very poetic it's so precise that it almost reminds me of it almost reminds me of the translation work that goes into sort of translating the, the the original Homeric epics. You every single word and everything, every single bit of language, whether or not you you'd write in meter, whether or not you translate this as that, or just the biases that tra uh, translators put into their work. I I felt I felt that in every single word of Circe, where it's it feels like everything was picked deliberately to do what it needed to do, more so than Yeah, like she's weighed up she's weighed up her options and, and chosen the word with the right with the right heft to it. No, exactly. I mean there's 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 a point in there's a point in Circe where it uh, riffs on a lot of the translation work that obviously uh, she would have had to have read a lot of where she sort of tries to describe herself in like hexameters and and sort of imagining the, the the poets and imagining the lyricists who sing about her and being quite derisive of them to be honest and I <laughs> it 
when I was reading it, it, it sounds really strange to say that a, you know, a book that is written in contemporary English reminds me of a translate, reminds me of translation work of classical texts. But reading it, I just, I was so, so reminded of it's um, Emily Wilson's new translation of the Odyssey and listening and doing some sort of supplementary reading around it where it's this translation of the Odyssey. It's the first official translation of the Odyssey by a woman. And so, so the, the full undertaking of it. And it's very, very interesting to hear the translation workers, uh, to, to hear Wilson talk about the choices of language that she makes and the choices of language that all translators make. I mean, in the original Odyssey, you have a couple of chapters where sort of in the sort of chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, which is known as the Telemachy, where Odysseus's son Telemachus goes on a little adventure of his own. He goes and meets Helen of Troy and he's like, tell me about my dad. And they're like, this is about your dad. And he's like, I feel like I've learned something today. And then he goes back to the, and then we come back to Odysseus. It's uh, it's not a very heavily studied uh, part of the Odyssey. We were told to skip it in school. But either way, there's a really, really interesting thing in me about, and it does tie into almost the representation of women in, in Circe, where the representation of Helen of Troy the way that she's made to speak by a lot of translators is 10 times more derogatory and more insulting of her character than the original text implies. One text calls her a dog, another text calls her things that are a little bit worse than the dog, but she's made to describe herself this way and sort of her awful behaviour in, in, in abandoning her husband and, and running away to Troy. But in the original text, there's very little of that as an implied thing she's it, it the i believe the word itself is something like it, it's described as dog-eyed which is more like sharp calculating a little bit mm -hmm. wild of a choice but where these translators have taken it into calling her a female dog uh, and <laughs> um and sort of just in taking it and running with it to ins insult her potentially because of their own views on Helen and maybe by extension women and I think it's very very interesting the very precise language choice of something like Circe where you have to think about the text that you're taking it from there are a hundred different translations of that text and when you go from a translation you have to keep the thoughts of the people adapting it for their audience and for their culture in mind I guess. Yeah, and Madeline Miller has a nice riff on exactly this issue. Again, it's a, it's another thing that she plays with quite. I want to say a light hand, but it's also very deliberate. And you and you and you don't. It's not like she's trying to be subtle. She's being very straightforward, but she's also not belaboring her thing. Is like the first time that Circe gets called a witch, and the word that she chooses to use, and the the way that she reacts as a character to it, and then the kind of little explanation that comes on the back of that is a a really nice short, sharp carefully worded meditation on exactly the kind of thing you've just been talking about with respect to Helen. And it's just one of those great things about this novel is that it's just very generous. You get the feeling that Madeline Miller is very generous with her knowledge. She's she's someone who's really studied classical literature and and the ins and outs of it and has has seen something in it that she wants to tell, that she feels she has uh, a useful thing to tell about it. And then she's she's never held back from translating that her own interest into something that is is generous in giving on the page itself is is my view of it it's such a it's such a love letter and such a and in such an intelligent almost 
interpretation of both the original text and almost the lineage that has followed these texts. Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. And and a great note to end on, Hannah Bean, thank you so much for joining me on Novel Romantics. It's been a great chat about a really super interesting novel that I hope people, if they haven't read it already, will go out and read. And if they have and are listening to this as a way of thinking about it some more, I hope we've given you something more to think about and go back and reread parts of the novel about. Um, thanks for joining me, Hannah. Thank you so much for having me and for listening to me talk about the Aeneid so much. <laughs> Total pleasure. <laughs> Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the America Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening. Turn me into a duck, yeah. Get your, um, get your potions together. <laughs>